Amen. That's right. So Romans 1, verse 18. I'm going to read 18 through 23. It's an interesting passage you're probably all well aware, used to, but what can we learn again today? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. What a somber analysis of the state of man. And this goes right back to the beginning of creation after the fall, obviously, and continues on to this day. Some writers called this little section in the following uh, portion to the end of chapter 1, descent into pravity, to depravity. But as I thought about it, I thought, you know, we don't descend anymore into depravity. We're as depraved as we can get. We're, we're already, that's where the T and tulip comes from, totally depraved. Very humbling. No one likes to admit they're totally depraved, but part of, our, part of the fall, part of the curse, to be totally depraved. But the difference is, some of us haven't yet had the fullness of that depravity exposed in us thank God, or exhibited in us, but history is cyclical and we've heard, we've seen in history some things that happened to mankind that have been hideous and uh, beyond even our, our thoughts of uh, what is normal or humane and it can be done again and again throughout the time of history because of the depravity that's in men. What we're capable of, each of us, is scary and we ask the Holy Spirit to restrain us. Back at the time of the flood, before the flood, the Lord said in Genesis 6.5, the Lord, this is the analysis, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So, the original language is repeating the fullness of this. That every inclination of the thoughts of all of his heart was only evil all the time, and the word means sun up to sun down. That's the state of man that we're in. And because of that had effects on man's relationship to God, we could even say this this little passage is about one, how men see God, two, how God sees men, and three, how men should see God, and how we now know God because of his help through for us. Some connect verse 17. I thought it was a good point. We start with verse 18, but some writers connect verse 17 with 18 because it's showing a contrast. Verse 17 is saying this in a paraphrase. For a righteousness from God is revealed by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. See the, see the contrast? There? So we're talking about righteousness. The gospel. We're talking about the gospel. Righteousness is revealed Wrath is revealed from, for all ungodlessness and wickedness and disobedience. So we'll see that again. That the, the gospel is one time, Gary likes to say, it's good news for bad people and bad news for good people. People that think they're good and don't know any better. 
So it has two of the the gospel have two two type of effects on people when the good news is really told. Brings salvation unto those who believe and unmitigated wrath on those who willfully reject it. Now that doesn't mean the world doesn't have religion. We've got more religion in the world than we know what to do with, right? That's something that unbelievers complain about. So many religions, so many religions. Man is religious, but the Bible says he has the form of religion, but he denies the power. So there's really not a lot of atheism really in the world. Even those who claim to be atheists, there's really possibly no such thing as a belief in something. If the bottom line is usually men believe in men. We believe in us. That's what we see in our world today. A rejection of God and an adherence to what men... And this is what the real message is about is this. To understand that men are limited and we're very vulnerable and very mortal, but God is limitless and immortal and all-powerful and all-knowing. And that's who we want to uh, adhere to. We want to embrace Him today. And this is what we're trying to tell the world. To get them to understand. They're li- and this is what men run from every day. Is, th- is how they're limited. How they're vulnerable. How they're mortal. They run when no one chases. They try to pretend they're safe when they're not. They seek security where it can't be found. That's what po- our poor world tries to do because of their fall and the realization of what God has shown them in their hearts. So this is what we hope to, t- to share with them as well. So verse 18 tells us that he gave them over. He get, you'll find that in the end of the chapter, he gives them over ironically to the very things they want, which is bad for them because it keeps them away from knowing him. And God's wrath is being poured out. And at first, when you might read that, you get a little scared. And you're like, wow, God just throws wrath around. Well, that's kind of scary, right? God can just throw out wrath anytime He wants. Well, what this really means is not what... I thought one man made a good point. He said, Human, humans object to the idea of wrath because we often associate it with a desire for revenge, right? But God's not desiring revenge on people. His wrath is about judgment and righteousness so when he shows his wrath he always does things according to a plan he's not out of control like we can get his wrath is this type of judicial uh it's not it's not temperamental like men but it has a judicial character and the object of the divine wrath is against two things it tells us verse 18 all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress truth by their wickedness remember that if you can remember your life as a... I, I say the word cross, but I don't want to confuse us with the cross of Christ so much. But say the letter T. Your life is... Always think letter T. Your relationship to vertical God and your relationship to horizontal men. There's the, the two cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. So what this is showing is that the two aspects here... That God's wrath is against the, the, all the, un, the godlessness. That's against God. That's the impiety, the rejection, the disrespect of God that's committed. And secondly, wickedness. That's the sins against man. That's the sins against each other. And what we can do. And this, of course, um, brings God to the point of his wrath. And how do men do it? How, it's interesting. How do men suppress truth? By wickedness. Isn't that fascinating? You do more to, to try to get away from acknowledging it or, or hiding it uh, or, like they say, suppress it. What does this word suppress uh, really mean? It's interesting. Um, 
I find that what they do is they try to do more sin somehow to uh, get around it. For instance, today we have a, a tendency to do what with sin? We legalize it. If we legalize sin, guess what? It's no longer sin anymore. But that doesn't change anything. We can legalize sin till the cows come home, but it still is sin. No matter if we try to convince you, though, it's okay, you can go do this now. But I still feel guilty. You can go do it. It's legal. Or what about the numbers? This is another thing that men use. You have ten people in an elevator. I, I don't know why I use the term why elevator, just because you're stuck, I guess. Nine say, this is right, and it's sin. And one says, one lonely Christian says, no, it's sin. Well, the nine can yell a lot louder, and there's nine of them and one of you. So, guess who's right? That doesn't mean they're right. Just because there's nine people, or there's nine million people saying it is right. So this is how they suppress. Uh, sometimes they drown out by rushing into immoralities. Uh, they deny it. They'll just outright deny it's, it's wrong. It's interesting that the word suppress um, can also mean to restrain. Think of how our world restrains Christians, wants to restrain the gospel, restrain the Bible, suppress it. It can mean to take hold of it and possess it, which means to control. I thought it was fascinating that, you know the passage, we can look at a little bit, Second Thessalonians, where it says, uh, we, re- we believe it's referring to the Holy Spirit, until the restrainer or he that restrains be taken out of the way. That's the same word for suppress here, restrain. So the Holy Spirit restrains sin, or the, the, the total anarchy of fullness of the depravity of sin in our world, while men restrain truth. Isn't that amazing? Both can suppress. Uh, even with the, the Lord Jesus, it's fascinating to me how to restrain themselves from His truth, they yell, crucify Him, crucify Him. And, and they came running with their fingers in their ears. You ever read that in the Scripture? That's fascinating, psychological. They screamed at the top of their lungs and stuck their fingers in their ears so they didn't hear it's amazing what men will do to delay or resist truth. So verses, let's look at verse 19 through 20 then and see how this goes and, and to explain it. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood uh, by what he had, what has been made, so men are without excuse. Isn't it interesting? What's invisible has been clearly seen. That's different. How? Through what we call natural or general revelation. Everybody's probably heard that, right? That's the world. That's nature. That's the the kingdoms of the air and the sea and the fish and the plants and the animals and the bugs and man and it's it's all the levels of what God has created that men know and try to explain away with a theory or two, which they themselves change, right? Transitional evolution is no more. The, the, the theories always change because they don't make sense and they're exposed. And so now we go from a transitional evolution where everything had a missing link. It doesn't work. So there's explanations now of a punctuated equilibrium and all these fascinating ways to get around, which are more bizarre than just believing 
that a divine creator, all-knowing creator. What's that punctuated? Uh, well, what, uh, they call it the hopeful monster theory. Um, and, and even atheists believe this um, today. It's really the, 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 uh, the doctrine and evolution by many leading paleontologists. Stephen, H., Stephen Gould, a Harvard paleontologist who was an atheist, not a friend of Christians, he was the one that really pro, uh, proposed it and, and brought it into... Um, kind of uh, fashion and vogue in evolutionary circles is that since there is no transitional evolution, he said all, all the evidence that can be given to prove missing links in transitional evolution, he said, could be placed in a small toolbox. In other words, there's nothing. So they have to come up with, so punctuated equilibrium or the hopeful monster theory is called by uh, the layman, is where... Uh, a, 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 a crocodile is laying eggs, and one day there's a bird in the egg. This is called punctuating. So he appeared, and then boom and boom. And that's actually proposed by these men of, of intellect. Yeah, well, anything but God, that's the point. Joycelyn told me that I had a punctuated unequilibrium. <laughs> I guess you talked about that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds serious. Harry, is that new uh, theory being taught to grammar school kids? Is I don't know. There's many different types of evolution being taught today. It's not just yeah. one thing. There are still those who believe in transitional evolution, though, plenty. They're always trying to find that missing link. Every once in a while on news, I'll, I'll hear one. We got it, we got it, and then it gets quiet. They never find it. But even, even a lot of thinkers who are not Christian do believe and have signed over themselves to the idea of a intelligent design. Many accept that. They just won't say it's the Christian God or the biblical God, but intelligent design. Like someone said, someone once said, even if you believe the Big Bang, somebody had to pull the trigger. You know, somebody had to light the fuse. The Mark? argument was a few years ago, Hawking came up with the idea that actually everything did come from nothing. Come from what? Nothing. Right, right, exactly. It just kind of... They said, they said for transitional evolution to be true, you would have to, it's like taking the, the six million parts of a 747 and throwing them out in outer space and they all come down and make an airplane. That's how it happens. Anyway, so man will try desperately because the point isn't what they're really believing. The point is what they're disbelieving and what they're suppressing is really the point. Uh, but what God has made is clearly seen. We were talking about in nature. Uh, and again, natural revelation is sufficient to make man responsible. I thought this was interesting. I read someone say that natural revelation itself, though, cannot lead to salvation. Natural revelation should make men want to learn more. General revelation should make men seek. And then once men seek, special revelation, we call it, is what? Scripture. The Word of God, special revelation, then comes to them who seek. And the Holy Spirit reveals the gospel and faith is given to believe in Christ. So general revelation should lead men to seek and special is given. But most men who receive general revelation or natural revelation keep it at that level and never go beyond or then they, they scramble to explain it in some way. So someone once said that general revelation is enough to entice men. Uh, it's not enough to save them, but it's enough to judge them. Because all that can be seen about God, it says, is clearly seen so there without excuse. Now, fast, I want to show you a fascinating 
I, I go off it. It's not a rabbit trail, really, but I want to share this with you because if you want to preach to somebody and you're and you're witnessing, go to Acts 17, just a few pages back. Stay in Romans 1, but Acts 17. I want to show you a, a, a beautiful testimony or witness that the, the Apostle Paul did to unbelievers, to Gentiles, and it's fascinating how it's very simple and it'll astound them and, and rock their world. It'll rock their religious world, take away any confidence they have in what they think they believe. And Paul describes to the Athenians, he's reasoning with them, and they're unbelievers, of course, and he notices that they have many gods, and he, he compliments them on their religious, you know, they're very religious. And Acts 17, verse 22, Paul stood up in a meeting of the Aeropagus and said, Men of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. As I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, many, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, you take this portion we're going to read from verse 24 on and, and make a mark in your Bible because you can preach this to unbelievers. So easy, so simple, and it'll, it'll stop them in their tracks at least for a few minutes. And this is someone who thinks they believe in something. And it's, he says here, the God who made the world and everything in it. So now he's talking about the true God, which they want to know. It is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temple, temples made by hands. Wow, that takes away most of the world's religions right there. He, does, he doesn't live in temples. He doesn't live in cathedrals. He doesn't live in church buildings. He doesn't live in a mosque. He doesn't dwell in a city? Nope. Wow, it takes away a lot of their confidence right there. He doesn't dwell in temples built by hands. So they're left with their mouths hung open saying, oh, where is he? Second, he says this, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, funny, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So he says, secondly, and he doesn't need anything from you. So there's nothing you can do to serve this God on your own. And, and they're stumped because now their temples are worthless. Their temples mean nothing. Now the, the works of their hands, all their sacrifices, all their, all their works, all their efforts they do to please the gods is worthless. Because Paul jokingly, humorously says, he doesn't need anything from you. There's nothing you can give him. So the people are like, ah, what do we do? He doesn't dwell in our temples. He doesn't need anything from us. What can I do? They're stuck with the realization of their limitations. This God is limitless. He doesn't dwell in your temples. He doesn't need what you get from your hands. He doesn't need what you give him as a serving or an offering of whatnot. And then he even declares this. And this little, this little portion goes from, the, from Adam all the way to the final judgment. Look at this next verse. 26. From one man he made every nation of men. This one, this blew their religion out of water. That's Adam. From one man he made every nation of men that they should... Now listen to this history lesson. That they should inhabit the whole earth. That's the scattering from the Tower of Babel. We'll see you in a second. That they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined... Look at the sovereignty here of God to these people. He determined... God determined the time set for them, peoples and nations... And the exact places where they should live. God ordained the times and the 
the epics of kingdoms and empires and nations, the kings who would come and fall, come and go, and even where they would live, what nation should live where. Now, nations can change a little, but basically, where you've got your, Ch- your Chinese, Asian, uh, whatever, Indian, you know, Spain, Spaniards, Thai, the different groups of people that came out of Babel, that were scattered out of the face of the earth, God has ordained and there was a reason for it. He said that um, the places where they should live. Now, I, so a little more rabbit trail. Stay there and there. But go back to Genesis 11 and listen to what God said. As he noticed man was building a tower and our buddy Nimrod, the great, the great empire builder from the ancient days, was out there building Babel and Nineveh and others and... So listen to what men say. In in chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 1, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar. They're moving out from the the, the area of Eden and where they were created. And they settled there in verse 3. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone. The whole point there is that when you burn bricks in a kiln, it's stronger than just clay. It's stronger than a stone. So these men, the point is they're building permanent, eternal forts here. Forts. Against who? Possibly the heavens, we see. So they say they use brick, and it says, they said, come, let us build our... Look at verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city to get away from God like Cain. So that we may make, look at this, a name for ourselves. But see what he said? Let us make a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, to God himself. And he says, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Us men, mankind. We don't need God. We make a name for ourselves. And in Hebrew, I was reading one country. This is, take this, as, it's just fascinating. We will make a name for ourselves. You know what the Hebrew word for name is? Shem. Who is Shem? It's a play on words. We will make a Shem for ourselves. The godly line. We will make a name. We'll be the godly line. And then it says they knew something might have been coming. It says we will make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Which was going to happen. Listen to what the Lord says. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Imagine that. If man is allowed to unify in one language, he can create problems. Not that God is afraid or scared, but God's timing and his reasoning and his uh, epics must be done according to his will. So the reason, so he says, come let us go down, confuse their language, they will not understand each other. And the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. So that's why he did that. Why did he scatter them? So they couldn't stay united. Why, isn't it fascinating that we have so many nations now in the world, and what's the good thing about them? They're always divided. Russia's divided, China, we divide, we, that keeps men from unifying. That was God's plan. If man had one language and one nation, they would try to interrupt and come in, come in conflict with his plans. So this keeps his plans on course. So go back to Acts 17. There's another reason why. 
Acts 17, verse 27, after telling, talking about the exact places where they should live, look at verse 27. God did this, did what? Scattered them throughout the earth into their own nation so that men would seek Him. See that? God did this so men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we move and live and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, even, even the Athenians, even the Greeks, Epicureans, knew that God was our Father, but they don't know him personally. We are his offspring, one of their poets said. So Paul is saying that God divided the nations and separated them so they would seek for God. They would see natural revelation, they would seek for God and look for him. Paul says, verse 29, or hopefully... Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think, and here's the third thing, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. So you tell people three things. He doesn't live in temples or churches or cathedrals. He doesn't need anything from your hands as much as you'd like to give it to him and make him happy. That doesn't do it on its own. And three, he's not an idol made out of stones and wood and gold that you can put in your pocket or worship a shrine. He took everything from people away. He took all their religion away. And what are they left with? He says in verse 30, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. This is the, responsible, the responsibility of men mixed with the sovereignty of God. He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice, this is a judgment, by the man He has appointed. Here's Jesus. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. There's the gospel right there. Everything you need to talk to somebody briefly and, and ruin their world in religion, so to speak. That's the true God? Then what can I do? Good question. If he doesn't live in temples and he doesn't care to take things from my hands and I can't make idols and I can't worship a shrine, what do I do? There you go. You believe in him who he has sent. Jesus said, they said, what must we do to do the works of God? This is the work, singular, of God. Amen. Believe in Him who He has sent. And that's enough. That's plenty. And then let God work out those things you want to do for Him that He will ask you to do. It even tells us in, in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3, verse 11, He says, He has put eternity in the hearts of men. You ever read that? What does that mean? His, but, but notice the portion right after that. I'll read it to you. He says, He has put eternity in the hearts of men. He says, Yet, now don't forget this part of that verse. Yet they cannot, man cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. What's that whole point there? We believe. That it's saying, let me wipe my brow, I'm a southern preacher here. Um, that he puts eternity in the hearts of men. The word eternity, we would say, Isn't that great? God gave us eternity. Well, it's really kind of a, a necessary evil because. He gave eternity in the hearts of men so that men can see what? That they're limited. Because men like to be in one spot. We like to have things in control. But what it says here, he cannot fathom the beginning and the end of what God has done. God has seasons of time, right? God has epics where he changes plans and, and goes forward with his progressive idea of what he wants to do in the world. But eternity in the hearts of men means that it gives us a cause to be unsure. Right? We, man likes things to stay the same. God changes things. We don't like that. Even our own nation may be in decline or has been in decline. I don't like knowing that. I like to think of America as what I thought. After 
you know, great powerful America is in decline. Well, something, you know, what's, that shakes our world. It, it makes us limited. So God gave man eternity, first the bad news, so that he might see he's got nothing he can hold on to. I don't know the beginning from the end. Do you? I don't know. All I know is where I live. I'm, I'm in this age. I live from this to this. But what happened before me? What happens? Man is vulnerable and limited. So what God is trying to do with men is to make them see that and to reach out to him. And, and that's what Romans, uh, that's what Acts said. That they might reach out to him. And the word they literally says, and grope for him in the dark. It's, that's what it means, grope. Like, where's God? I've got to find God. I'm limited. And that's what he did with, with you. If you're a believer today, you know that somewhere along the line, in, along in your life, you became afraid. Because we're always afraid, but you became more unsure. And so you started to grope and to reach and to seek for God. And I even prayed one time. That's how I got saved. I thought it was me, but it was the Lord. He put it in my heart to pray this. I was out in the middle of a baseball field on the Air Force Base. And I looked up and the metal stands and it was starry night. It was like a town common. And I said, if there's a God out there, help me. And then about two or three weeks later, I was at a different part of the base. And I said, again, I said, if there's a God out there, help me. I didn't even know what I was doing. But I knew I was groping. And then later, he brought someone to my life, a, a young man, who told me the simple gospel. But that, that's what happened to you. Somewhere along the line, you said, I need you. And that's how... that. But with men in general, he does not do this, sadly. Um, he turns away from the living God and he seeks idols. As a matter of fact, I want to read uh, in verse 21. And he says... For although they knew God, they neither glorified God or, nor gave thanks to Him. I thought that was interesting. What does thanks got to do anything? But their, in their thinking became futile. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. So what happens to man is he must make a decision. He can either submit to God's truth and what he sees... And what God has given him a heart to know, even if he's groping, he will either submit to it or he will suppress it. Or restrain it or run away from it or, or substitute it. And that's, that's, what, that's the second trick men usually do. They either suppress it and ignore it or they substitute for it. And this is where religion comes from. Religion apart from the truth is what I mean. They knew God, you know, they had, they had a knowledge somehow of this great being that created the world. It says, but they did two things wrong. They neither glorified him, we get that, or gave him thanks. Why is that important? Do you ever read how important thanks is in the New Testament? Right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything through prayer, with thanksgiving. That's odd. Make your request known to God. Right? Thanksgiving. Why? First Thessalonians. You want to know the will of God in Christ Jesus for you? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. Everything. For this is the will of God of Christ Jesus in you. Some think that giving thanks in all circumstances is what's connected to this is the will of God. Sometimes not, but I would say we can include rejoicing and praying and thanks as all part of the will of God, obviously. 
But to give thanks. Why is it so important to give thanks? Why was it so important? Why is it so important for men to give thanks? And it was so detrimental to these men in that time and today that they refused to give thanks. Why is that so important? Why is that equal to almost glorifying God? They neither glorified Him nor gave thanks. Susie? Because in order to give thanks, you have to know that there's something that comes from. Exactly. The source. The source. When we give thanks, we're acknowledging the source. When we don't give thanks to God, and it breaks my heart. You know, we, we try to, we all, I think as Christians, you try to say thanks for your food as often as you can, as often as possible. And it breaks my heart when I'll go in a restaurant somewhere and I'll see unbelievers just start eating away. And not to be legalistic, what I mean is they don't know Him. That's what bothers me. They're eating this great meal or the little children are eating their fries and and there's no thanks to God. That's the, that's the part that's sad. That they don't know Him. They don't know the source. So giving thanks is so important that it's, it's actually registered here in the Scripture. And he says, because of that, then there's a downward kind of spiral that exhibits itself in men and even today. Mm-hmm. And he says, in their thinking they became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is what's interesting. The word futile there, right? In English, it's kind of a strange word. You know what it means? It's original. It can mean some different types of meanings. I thought it was fascinating. It says here that they... Um, it means that it was pointless and aimless. The word futile means pointless and aimless. Their thinking became pointless and aimless. If there's anything in our society today that we see as what? Especially in young people. I hate to say and in, in, in old people too. An aimless life. Where are people going today? You know, when uh, after Cain flew Abel, God was interacting with him. It says that Cain took off. It says he became a fugitive and a vagabond. And that's what happens when you turn your back on God. Amen. You become a fugitive and a vagabond. And he should have searched for God and repentance of some way. Instead, what did he do? He built a city to get away from God and to supply his needs and to make his own needs apart from God. To be futile... Um, is to be pointless and aimless. And if there's one thing, and I work, my, my job that I have now, I've been about seven months, I work with youth in, 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 in the Department of Mental Health and Behavioral Health. And uh, what I see with the youth is we have diagnosis. I don't give them diagnosis, but the, the, count, the therapists give them diagnosis. And then I work with those. I take their diagnosis and I work with them. But the number one diagnosis we find in youth today who, who are having troubles is anxiety. Anxiety is the number one threat to them. And we have different, they have different types of anxiety. Separation anxiety, all kinds of anxiety. But anxiety is number one. Number two um, is impulsivity, which means they're very quick. They can't sit still. They move all the time. But what does impulsivity come from? Anxiety. Fears. Unknown. The third one, and, and again, this isn't a perfect, but I find anger. Where does anger come from? Anxiety, fears. So men are filled with anxiousness today. We always have been because we, when we're separated from God, we're vulnerable. This is the point God wants men to see in the earth today. You're limited, you're vulnerable, you're mortal. Can't deny that. You just drive by cemeteries all, and you'll see we're mortal. Yeah. 
And so, what do men do? They are to, to grope and reach, or they suppress and substitute, sadly. Gary, were you going to say something? Well, I'm just going to uh, back up a little bit in the overall thought here. You know, faith is revealed <coughs> to people, <coughs> as you said, from heaven. <coughs> and wrath is also re- being right. revealed as a... Ongoing. Ongoing. Exactly. exactly. Yep. I don't know if you intend on getting to that, but... No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, please do. You're right. Ongoing is true. I mean, I could be wrong on this, but my thinking is that wrath is being revealed by God letting man, and you said it earlier, be what they want to be. Right. Israel in the wilderness. Give us meat. We're tired of this manna. Right. Right. The Bible says God gave them quail, but he sent leanness into their soul. So in other words, God is like abandoning man to their own dereliction, their own direction and choice of life. In hopes that. And that's, in a sense, how wrath is being revealed. God has sort of let them go where they want to go, and the rest of the chapter seems to describe all these heinous acts and sinful behaviors of mankind. Because God's wrath is being revealed. When he allowed uh, Israel and the northern, southern, the southern kingdom specifically to go to the Babylonian captivity, what, one, of, one of the reasons was discipline, but what was the other reason we could say? So that they would seek for God. They would miss God and want him. Mark, are you going to say something? Yeah, I was just going to point out that, uh, as Gary was just mentioning, God's wrath is being revealed. And he goes on there in chapter 1 to talk about how uh, men and women exchange national for uh, uh, Right. Actually, when it comes That's to coming. sexuality. That's coming later, right? Uh, I, think, I think the point is that that is the revelation of God's wrath. Right, and giving that's, them over. That is one thing, right. Some of the things among the revelations of God's right. wrath, that isn't. It. That is, I mean, God's wrath doesn't come, doesn't come because of it. That is the. That is the wrath. That is the wrath. Right. That is it. Exactly. In uh, in hopes that we, yeah. right. In hopes that we might turn to Him yeah. or seek Him. Maria. The wrath being revealed is that they're going to live with the consequences. That's true too. Right. 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 And I think even and and even in these things, I believe by the grace of God to to the world, even He still is allowing time for men to search for Him if if they would, if they would seek it. Yeah. So you get this picture of um, men by their unrighteousness suppressing the truth. Right. You know, um, because they act as if God does not exist mm-hmm. you know, living by their own desires and not by his they suppress his reality for right. their actions they try um, but God's so jealous for his name and for his reputation and um, to reveal himself to the world that he then reveals um, his wrath from heaven right. because if they will not acknowledge yeah. him um, in his creation and his life giving um, he will make himself revealed by his wrath right in a sense he's still trying to show they they still see him whether they like it or not and they see the results of this and like Maureen was saying well think think about uh, is think about Israel what God did took away the temple right took away the Ark of the Covenant so why 
so they would they would miss him they would look for him and seek him what about us as Christians what does God do what what when Christians practice church discipline what is the final result Jesus said when someone reaches the point will they not listen to the church they will not listen to leaders what happens they're put out why though so they come back right so they miss you. They miss him. They, they miss the fellowship. And, and they're brought down to the point where they cry out and grope. And this is God's big circle, right? And what the Holy Spirit does in our life, he'll allow us to go our way until we come to the point where we say, what was I doing? Like, like the prodigal son, what was I doing? What was I thinking? And he, he comes to his senses. He goes back to his father. He says, Father, forgive me. And his father, of course, receives him fully. And then it says here, back to Romans, he says they, they were futile, they became pointless and aimless in their thinking. It says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, foolish means they, they can't put facts together. Isn't that odd? You see today the illogicalness of our system. They don't think. They, they don't get A and B equals C. One and one is two. They're not getting it. It's bizarre how people think. Educated people who have no common sense, it seems. Because they're becoming foolish. And then... Worsely, it says, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, this is bad because it's un as we study that, it's understood that this has two parts. They darken themselves, but guess who else is helping them become dark? The, the Lord helps them to take away more light. The Lord takes away the light that they had. Remember what Jesus says? To him who has will be given more, to him who doesn't shall be even taken away. That's part of his wrath too. That's what Second Thessalonians talks about, remember? He'll send them a delusion to believe the lie. And, and someone once said, you're in a bad... I, I wish I could say it. It was a commentary. I should have wrote it down. But he said something like, what a state man is in when he has God and Satan in agreement. See what I'm saying? With respect to God now. When God and Satan are in agreement against you to send you a lie. Remember Isaiah? Who shall go be a lying prophet? I will. Remember that? Yeah. Remember when God said that? Who will go and be a lying spirit? I will. He sent a lying spirit. When men want to follow the lie, they will lie. And then probably worstly what happens is it says here in verse 22, although they claim to be wise, they became fools. Now that's not mocking people or making fun of them. What he's saying is, they thought they were wise, but instead they chose a foolish thing and choose a foolish thing today. It's ongoing. What is, what is the foolish thing they choose, that men choose, as foolishness to God? 23. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and images. Isn't that foolish? To take the immortal, powerful, all-knowing, all, the limitless God and exchange it for what is limited and weak and vulnerable. And this is what men do, even today, exchanging it. And some call it, I thought it was interesting, you can call it whatever you want, but this is called in theology the great exchange or the inglorious exchange. And if you think about it, this lie and this exchange goes back to where? All the way back to what? The Garden of Eden. When Eve said, the devil said, hey... You, this is good stuff. And God doesn't want you to have it. And then when Eve saw that it was beautiful to look at and for knowledge and wisdom and for food, she exchanged the, the immortal for the lie. Ready? 
So at this point, basically, they don't have a conscience. It's they so said that um, yeah, that built-in warning that God designed right. us with is gone. I think you're seeing that today. Yeah. So at, when you're at that point, I would I would say that you turned over, right? It's scary, right? And the Bible talks about a seared conscience, right? Seared is the cot- means to cauterize, where we get the hospital, the medical word to cauterize. When you burn it so bad that you could stick a needle in your arm and you feel anything? I don't feel anything. That's what seared means. It means without feeling. Seared conscience. So their exchange is to exchange the immortal God for the mortal man. And that's what Second Thessalonians said. I was going to close with this passage, as a matter of fact. Uh, one of the things to say is Paul said in Second Thessalonians 2, he says um, about the end and how, how men will oppose God and exalt himself. It says that this man of lawlessness is going to come, this, this beast. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that's called God or is worshipped. He sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember? I used to tell you these things. But here's the Holy Spirit again. And now you know that what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back, the restrainer, the suppressor, will continue until he's taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. And you know that part. But listen to this last verse in this, that passage. They perish. He says... The evil deceives those who are perishing. See, evil deceives. They perish because why? Because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Refused. Then he says, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And then what's the end result? The judgment. He says, and so all that will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but what? delighted in wickedness. We go back to Romans there. They refused the truth, would not believe the truth, not that they didn't have enough truth to seek, but they refused it and, and delighted in wickedness. And, and, and just to conclude by saying how man substitutes one, he su- what does man substitute for God, first of all, do we read in Scripture? And this is a little bit back and forth. Himself, right? Men. Nebuchadnezzar makes idols, statues of himself. In, in Jesus' day, in Paul's days, they called it the, the, the cult of Caesar. Even, even in the World War II, when, when Japan was defeated, remember the emperor didn't want to come out in public and admit defeat, because why? Because the Japanese people saw the emperor as divine, as deity. And so he, he in his wisdom, at least for him, he did surrender, as you know. And uh, the people were, were just shocked. Because their emperor, who they thought was like a god, had to come out and admit defeat. So men worship themselves. Secondly, then what do they do? They worship what? They make images of what? Animals. Creatures, right? We do, they did that. Even today now, we have the shrines and Mother Nature, and we worship creatures more than we worship God. But this is possible. So this is where we kind of... What's the next step then? Is there a third step? Is there a final step of worship that we have not yet seen? Besides God, I mean. What? Say it again. Exactly. We see a combination, a hybrid, right? That's 
famous word today, hybrid cars, right? You ever hear of the, the German psychologist, psychiatrist called the, the Ubermann? You ever hear of that? What does it mean? Superman. superman, right. It's the dream of making man in his full evolution a superman. Uberman is what, what they would say. It means to, to have men come to the point where he is indeed almost or equal to God himself. So what happens in the end times, which I hope I'm not alive to see. I hope the Lord returns and takes us home or I go home to see him, praise God. But this man comes, this beast, who has powers like a god and makes himself images. And the people fall down. And this is really what they want, right? They want an Uberman who can answer all their problems, do counterfeit miracles. Well, they see the miracles. He can do signs that make them believe. And the Lord, even the scriptures talk about that if it were possible, these days would be shortened unless the very elect themselves would be deceived. I don't know where exactly that time frame is, but that's how powerful the deception is. And this beast comes and make men worship him and they willingly fall at his feet. This could be the final stage of the substitution. And if you think about it, what is his name? What do we call this beast? What's the name we give him? Antichrist. Which means one just like. Anti in, in old languages doesn't mean the opposite. It means one like. It means just like it. So in reality, they still want a Christ. They do. They just want it to be their way. And like I thought of idols, I thought, you know, when people make little idols and they put in their pockets or a shrine that doesn't talk and God would mock them and say, does it talk? Does it have eyes to see? Why do people do that? You don't think people are that stupid, right? Say, say this is my idol and I carved it. And I go, do you think I'm that stupid that I believe this is going to do anything? They can't be that stupid, right? Why do they do that? No, they're not. I, I don't think so. What do they think this is? Why do we do that? We're hoping what? Anybody? It will influence that which is the essence of what this is. See what I'm saying? Do you get it, what I'm saying? So when I make the... I don't think anyone's stupid enough, or maybe they are, to say, this is going to help me. This is going to help me. That has no eyes and cannot, has no mouth to talk. But why do men really hold on to their shrines and their idols? Were you going to say, Tom? Well, just to say, Isaiah 44 talks about that. Yes. That they, from the same tree, they make an idol out of wood. Exactly. And then they also sing that throw the same stick of wood in the fire. Exactly. But uh, they can't be that dumb. Well, that shows how dumb they are. Well, <laughs> they, but I mean, what, what, I'm, what I'm suggesting, one reason is because they think, well, like the shrines across the street, so to speak, is the reason why they worship at the shrines is to influence something else. So they're hoping, like, I'm carrying a, uh, what do you call this, like a copy or, you know, of it, so I've got it on me, so I can influence the gods out there somewhere. But here's, here's the point I'm trying to make is this. So if, so this is the big circle about man worshiping man. If I, can, if I have an idol that I know has no power, but I carry it because I think it will influence the god which is designed to influence, then who really is still in control? Me. I'm still the one that's the god. And that's what man always wanted to do, was to keep himself as God. Why? Because we're vulnerable and we're limited and we're scared to death 
because we float around on this beautiful blue-green planet out in the middle of dark, cold space. And no one knows where we came from. Except we do. And men are to grope and seek, but instead they find poor, poor mankind seeks every way to make it work that he can control and predict and science. And we make gods that can take care of us and it can't. And God will not allow men to ever become one world and one nation. Not until it's all over. Susie? It reminds me of something I read recently. And it has to do with the suppressing the truth. And if you listen carefully to People convinced against their will are of the same opinion still. Wow. Against their will. But they convinced, but it's against their will. Right. So their own logic would tell them this is true, but they can't accept it or want to believe it, so they reject it outright. They'll believe a lie. Who would be- It's kind of contradictory. Who would believe a lie? Because they want to. That, that's why scams work. People fall for it all the time. Hey, you, you won a million dollars. I did? Yep, just send me $5,000 and I can release the funds from Hong Kong. Really? Okay, 5000 coming your way. And people do it every day. They want so badly to believe this lie because of what it will do for them. So as we conclude, I was just going to say this. Embrace your limitedness. Embrace your vulnerabilities and your mortality. But embrace Him who is limitless and who is immortal. And like Paul says, we will take these tents and put them off, right? These temporary tents are waiting for a glorious eternal body. And then my prescription, Dr. Barry, as we go out this week, for me too, I wrote myself a prescription. Spiritual prescription is give thanks in all things this week. Everything. The good, the, the bad, the, uh, the ugly, the, the painful, the, the torturous, the good, the, the joy of the day, the meal. The family, the, the warm bed, the, the cool house, <laughs> the air-conditioned house. And give thanks. May this be a week where you give thanks more than you ever have given thanks. Because you know the source. And, and we would not dare to think it's from us somehow. That it says every good and perfect gift is from the Father above. Every good and perfect gift. And all circumstances means, and even those things that are terrible to us and harmful and painful are from him as well. We may not know exactly why, but we still... I, I like Job. I read somebody was picking on Job the other day. Everybody, some, you know, I like to pick on people in the Scriptures. I thought, you know, well, listen to Job. You know what Job said? Here's a godly man for you. He said, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Can you say that? Though he slay me, I'll trust him. Amen. I, and I want to be able to say that with a full heart of faith. Though he slay me, I'll trust him. Justin, would you close us in prayer? Thank you.